Stallone movies are a great example. <laughs> like, Cobra is a great example. Oh, Cobra's insane. Cobra Cobretti. He's a man on a mission. Marion Cobretti. You're the disease. I'm the cure. I mean, dude, you want to talk about a balls out, um, here is a bad cop, but he's yes. a hero, and he's straight up killing people, doesn't care, you know. Yeah, there is, a, it's toward the beginning of Cobra, there is a sequence where within five minutes, mm -hmm. he kicks a person of color out of his public parking spot, mm. because he just claims that it's his, because he's this cop. Then he goes inside, opens the freezer, not the refrigerator, mind you, right. the freezer portion of his unit, uh -huh. pulls out a pizza... Mm. Walks to a table, opens up a kit, and then takes a pair of scissors and snips off a chunk of the pizza and then eats it. Right. That's a thing that happens in Cobra. Well, that's because he's a tough guy and he doesn't care about anything in the world. And this was a model that you look at a character like Cobra, and this is uh, pushing that model to the furthest line possible. Because, of course, there are people in there who are saying, Cobra, you can't be doing this. You just can't be shooting up people. There are rules. And he's like, yeah, I know. And I'm pretty sure, if I remember right, isn't it the guy who's like the obnoxious uh, reporter from Die Hard? And he's yeah, the obnoxious, I think so. He's the obnoxious EPA guy in Ghostbusters. I think so. He's the guy with just the punchable That guy the always face. plays the obnoxious guy. Right? Who's usually in the right? Yes. Yeah. Well, so you've got Cobra in the back of a pickup truck with his, what, Mac 10s no, or No, actually, Uzis? I don't think it is that guy, actually. I think I'm wrong. He's also blonde, but anyway, go on. We should well, probably just get to the show, because we have no business talking about Cobra. Well, now, no, but the reason that we got into all of this is we started talking about the difference between these movies that were made in the 80s and 90s versus action movies now and the things, the scenes that would be depicted, you know, that kind of thing. Like, that introduction for Cobra that you just outlined there, that's a straight-up bad guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially nowadays, that's a straight-up bad guy, but this was a Stallone good guy character, you know, who basically takes the law into his own hands in a lawless you know, fighting against criminals who are above the law. We need someone who's above the law, too. You know, something like that. And it's that kind of shit. And that catchphrase, you know, you're the disease, I'm the cure. Fuck, I still remember that. And that movie was, what, 30, 40 years ago? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And it rules. And I've it rules. I've watched it recently. Oh, have you? Oh, <laughs> Plenty. Dude, when he pulls out the egg carton and that's where his gun cleaning kit is, uh -huh. you're just like, man, <laughs> there's just something yeah, that's right after so he intrinsically off. funny about that. It's, it's you know? right after he snips off a piece of pizza. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, but, you know. Well, hey, uh, He's a, he makes his own I'm rules. I'm trying to do the goddamn introduction. No, Brad. let's talk about Stallone no, just, some more in 80s movies. <laughs> well, welcome to HPV, I'm Hello, Chris. welcome, and I'm Brad. Hi. Brad, you lovely bastard. <laughs> you, 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 you brought a good one today, kind of. Well, it was an audible, but it's still a good one. Well, I got to tell you, you, um, you were absolutely correct. My first choice was not exactly the um, stylisto we go for uh, in terms of uh, types of movies and things. I mean, it was, it's, it was, it was too good for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's the best way to say it. Yeah. You know, um, but. 
the nice thing is is that um, somehow in the conversation we went from Kevin Costner to I think Charlie Sheen. And Charlie Sheen kicked off me go, or maybe it was Kiefer Sutherland. It was Kiefer. It yes. was Kiefer. Yeah, and that kicked off me going, "Wait a minute, have we done Young Guns? Well, wait a minute, have we done Three Musketeers?" And Brad, <laughs> we sure did watch Three Musketeers. <laughs> and, yes, and I would like to be very, very honest with you and everyone listening. Just flat out loved it. Yeah, absolutely loved it. I actually enjoyed it much more this time around. I saw it in the theater. Saw it twice in the theater. I actually paid to see that twice. Well, good in for the theater. you. Yeah. I encourage this kind of behavior, please. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it was a Three Musketeers movie. And um, at the time, now this was 93? 93, yes. 93. So, Charlie Sheen, Kiefer Sutherland were pretty much um, box office um well, I wouldn't say guaranteed gold, but they were definitely stars. Yeah, they, they could were, pull in. They were A-list stars by this point. Yeah, yes. they could pull in audiences. Uh, then we had Oliver Platt, who was, um, uh, what would you say, like favorite this, funny guy at yeah, the time? He, he was the uh, usually the slightly portly, mm-hmm. um, good time in comedic relief with a heart of gold. Yeah. Was what you generally used Oliver Platt for. Yeah, the good Uh, guy who would come in and kind of fill in the gaps in the plot. No, here's what's happening. And he'd say it with some sort of sense of humor or something. Some kind of joke. But he comes in as Porthos, the homicidal maniac who... uh, And uh, like we were kind of discussing earlier, featured... I I remember when this movie came out. I didn't Mm -hmm. see it in the theaters, but I was a kid when this came out. And Mm -hmm. I remember the advertising. Uh And they leaned heavily on Oliver Platt. This was a huge push for him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because this was also around the time that, um, just as uh, an example, there was Flatliners that that came out. That was also him and... Kiefer. Yeah, Kiefer, and then uh, Julia Roberts, I think, was in it. Wasn't that her? I think Julia Roberts, yeah. Was that her? Uh, I don't, I haven't seen Flatliners in a really long time. But Flatliners is another example of a roster of actors brought in to to, uh, sort of carry a sci-fi movie, and Oliver Platt was one of the guys um, in that ensemble as well. So, um, anyway, just an example of... um, the stars of the time, and this, this, I mean, I saw it twice because, let's face it, it was Three Musketeers. This is a classic um, story from uh, 1400s, I believe it was written by Alexander Dumas, and um, essentially it's about the King's Guard being disbanded by a disloyal cardinal, and um, them breaking up a scheme to undermine the king of France and save um, the king, save country, and save the musketeers. Yes. So. And uh, we, we haven't brought it up, but that treacherous cardinal oh. played brilliantly. By the one, the only... Tim motherfucking Curry, baby. Tim Curry. Fuck He's yeah. so good in this movie. Man... Tim Curry is good in everything that he does. He just has this ability to relish. He, okay, 
His little flourishes. Yeah. Ahead. You talk about actors who chew up scenery, right? You say, when you say that, typically that means that this actor is overacting in a way that really just kind of um, uh, makes the scene somehow more absurd in some way or somehow more over the top. Like William Shatner is a good example of that. It's distracting. It becomes distracting. Tim Curry has some magical ability to do this amazing line read, this powerful, charismatic performance, but he doesn't chew up the scenery. You just totally love watching this fucking guy's eyes bug out, his mouth gets big, and he's like, yes! Yes. (laughs) Oh my God, he's so fucking good. And the little, his, like you were saying, his line delivery, Mm -hmm. the way he'll say something and Mm -hmm. then come back with a little quip. Mm -hmm. Also. Yeah. It's beautiful. Like, God damn you, Tim Curry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the one thing where, uh, man, I'm trying to remember the line, but it's something like, um, oh, well, they're not going to come for you just yet, or something like that. They're not going to come for you just yet is how any other normal actor would say it. But he comes at it like, oh, they're not going to come for you just yet. (laughs) And you're just like... Holy shit, man. It, yeah, it just puts, suddenly becomes so evil and lovely. Because you know? he puts this, like, a strange sort of sass on it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if, yeah. You, if you were to see it in real life, you would definitely be like, hey, what the fuck? Hey, yeah. what's wrong with that guy? <laughs> like, why does he talk like that? This is a guy who embraces his performances in such a, a complete way. That even when he delivers over the top like that, you just you just relish it. You just love this delivery, you know. So okay, so Tim Curry. Let's not forget Michael Wincott. Oh man, Michael Wincott, who is uh, the he, he looks like if you spilled some dirtbag James Franco into your Heath <laughs> You know, a good comparison. He's like the sheriff of Nottingham. Mm-hmm. I forget what his character's name is. I'm sorry. It's a lovely French name that I'm sure would roll off the Roquefort. tongue. Lovely. Yeah, Ro- Roquefort, like yeah. the cheese. There you go. But um, <clears throat> but he's got an eye patch, and even with the eye and patch. And scars, so that we know he's evil. And he's got the low voice. Oh, man, he sounds oh, amazing, oh, Brad. He's, yeah, yeah. I mean... Now, you're right, Christopher Lee has a great bad guy voice, but Michael Wincott just has this way of growling out a sentence that just makes you go, oh, dude, Uh oh, uh uh-oh. It's it's like buttery gravel. Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. And I love his performance, and I love his fighting style with the sword. I mean, the way that... that, um, we got to hand it to this movie. They did give the individual characters individual fighting styles. They sure did. So unlike some movies these days, Star Wars, where all of the lightsaber moves are basically the same shit. Same old shit. Same old shit. Right? Mm -hmm. This had the different characters. So even Michael Wincott as the bad guy, when he's facing off against Kiefer Sutherland and then... Chris O'Donnell 
and then whomever else he's taking on, he's got a specific flow that really leans into that sort of predator type of movement, you know? He's very slinky. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, slinky, uh-huh. But, uh, but you also see, um, again, with those different styles, like there's Porthos, who's Oliver Platt, uh, with... I mean, he's pulling out fucking crossbow pistols. Uh-huh. He's got little bombs he's throwing around. It's like, Jesus Christ, man, he's, this guy's a killing machine. He's got uh, the ropes with the weights on it. Bolos, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. that he kills the dude with. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. Guy's running away. This thing hits him in the face. Now, these bolos, effectively, it's... um. It's a variation off of a traditional weapon, but the long and the short of it is is that you've got three weighted balls that are tied together by a rope, and you can throw these and use them to entangle and capture a target. So they're meant to be thrown more for the legs or something like that, and this guy <laughs> throws them at this guy's head, wraps while the guy's he's head run, up. While he's running away. The man is yeah. running from him, yeah. having already been... Effectively defeated. Yeah, exactly. Excellent point. How many times in this movie did we see someone who was effectively defeated, surrendering, giving up, on the ground, whatever, and they still get a fucking sword Uh to the gullet or whatever? No, you're dead. You're done. This was a Disney movie. It sure was. I was shocked. Somewhere, and even after seeing it twice, I mean, somewhere I forgot this was a Disney movie. And even with the Disney movie, there are people getting stabbed. We even saw this, blood. This this movie was far more violent than I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. There is some brutal shit in this. Yeah. The first time that we meet the Musketeers, which is what, about 15, 20 minutes in before we finally meet the Musketeers? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right after that, they are immediately straight up killing people. Yeah, there, there's none of the like kind of even Batmaning it or like new Disney where like oh he's defeated in this way where they're tied up and left for whatever. Yeah, they are straight up murdering these people. Yeah, unflinchingly. Uh huh. And, and reveling in it. Yeah. Well, Porthos especially. This is one of the things that we recognized about halfway through the movie is we have a character that we're being shown. All of these guys are ruthless killers. I mean, stone cold murderers. Yeah, no joke, straight up. But Chris, we're showing Chris O'Donnell lips off to them, and they're all like, "No, I'm going to kill you. Meet me here. We're going to do it." Yeah, yeah. Uh huh. The classic three duels uh, setup, which is always one of my favorite, because Dark Tanyan shows up at the first duel. They all show up. They all show up because you know, in a duel, you're supposed to have like your second, your observer, all of that sort of thing. Dark Tanyan's all by himself. Shows up with nobody. They all show up to support each other, and they're all like, "Well, you can't fight this guy because I'm supposed to fight him in an hour." Yeah, they all you know? want the privilege of being the one who <laughs> yeah, murders. They all this want kid. to, yeah, exactly. And that, that's exactly it. They all want to murder when he this first, kid. This is the first, duel. Like, okay, so he meets Kiefer and whatever else. But when he meets uh, Oliver Platt, yeah, Oliver Platt's just sitting at a table drinking and having fun. Yeah. Chris O'Donnell lips off to him, and he immediately stands up and is like, I will kill you. Well, <laughs> Chris O'Donnell uh, kind of falls and then spills, like, drinks and everything into Oliver Platt's lap. Yes. So Oliver Platt's like, yo, man, not cool. And Chris O'Donnell's like, hey, man, 
fuck you. Fuck you, I'm just trying to... And Oliver Platt's like, fuck me? Nah, man, don't you know who I am? And Chris O'Donnell's like, some fat fuck? And... <laughs> and that's basically the gist of the conversation if you break it down to contemporary dialogue. But, yes. <laughs> but the long short of it is you spilled a drink on me and then got kind of mouthy. Uh, fine, I'm, so I'm going gonna to kill fucking you. kill you. <laughs> and everybody around yeah. him is just like, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Good, so, good luck to you, kid. <laughs> so this very guy that we're talking about now, Porthos, this is Oliver Platt's character. This guy is shown multiple times reveling in the murder, the slaughter, the destruction that he is uh, unleashing. Party to, yes. yeah. Yeah, on, on different crowds. Now, granted, there are the Cardinal's guard that he's fighting against, you know, so these people are trying to kill him to a certain extent. But there are also these civilians around, and there's all sorts of craziness happening with, like, you know, horses running around or... Um, uh, carts and wagons being turned over, all of the shit that happens in like these different taverns. So in other words, it's not casual property. They make casual the property damage that they're doing in yes. all of these different locations, right? So uh, it's another thing that uh, um, is kind of remarkable to see with this sort of uh, contemporary mindset about movies and what heroes should be. Yeah, and because in 1993, we also didn't really worry about like, oh, well, if the good guy's going to say a one-liner in this kid's movie, he can't kill him. Porthos is straight up killing people and then joking about it. And there are several times where, like, after he crushes that dude's face and then strangles him effectively, his line is like, God, I love my work. Yeah. Literally, and he says it in a way, his face is all sweaty, he's got like this, uh, gotta, you know what I'm saying, there, dude. There's the other part where he, after murdering someone, like, I think he stabs the dude, isn't that where he, like, pulls out the, uh, three-bladed thing three-bladed and Three-bladed knife, knife and yeah. stabs the dude, and he's like, God, I love my work. Well, like, you just... You just took a man's life, and your response was, I love this. Yeah. I really enjoy this line of work. But see, now, I return once again, this was a Disney movie. So, to me, it only further emphasizes how the mindset was so very different in terms of uh, what it was. Not only to take a hero from a 1400s novel but to adapt that to what would be considered uh, an appropriate hero for the time right. in the 90s, and then see that now, 30 years later, and be like, wow, this was an appropriate hero. It would be interesting to see how this was reinterpreted again, you know, um, well, with a contemporary production. And, I mean, we can talk about Porthos all we want because he is this absolute maniac. But mm-hmm. all three of the established musketeers have gigantic flaws with them. I oh, mean, yeah. Porthos is an unrepentant murderer who, like, really, really loves it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charlie Sheen. Aramis. Aramis. He is a total womanizer and just completely manipulates like local women who don't have any, you know, schooling. Obviously, it's the fourteen hundreds, mm-hmm. 
and he's telling them these poems and you know well now, really really talking these women into sex constantly and there's another aspect to Aramis that um they don't really play up in this movie but um, it was the aspect that um, he was very religious. So a lot of times, like in that first scene where he's with this woman who's cheating on her husband, uh, or ultimately that's the ambition with the scene, his first counseling is all, you know, about the Bible and um, Christianity, whatever. That's why he's there and we see him throughout the movie doing things like he'll shoot somebody and then say oh go with god yeah ah thank god you know (laughs) make a little cross and be like go with god like man you just straight up murdered that dude (laughs) in the streets (laughs) yeah and you're like you're like i mean what do you think you're you're giving him a blessing now that you've just i mean it's it's this bizarre sort of um uh uh duality with the character but i mean dude and i know you haven't seen it but this is one of the reasons why i brought up the michael york um three musketeers now in the late 70s i believe it was there was a tv hallmark used to do there was the movie of the week right and um in this case they did the three musketeers and the four musketeers um the three musketeers was michael york um and uh, Richard Chamberlain, Oliver Reed was Porthos. Do you remember Oliver Reed at all? No. Okay. Here's a significant difference in that version versus this updated version, which is that Porthos was um, was known as, uh, like, Porthos the pirate, they added that in the 90s version. But him being known as a brawler and very tough and all of that, that was a big part of it. But he was also very much uh, a drunk and an alcoholic, which was part of his problem as a musketeer was that, you know, he may have been strong, but his weakness was wine, right? So each one of these people had sort of a different um, uh, vice that they represented, you know, so Aramis, with his religion, his dichotomy was that, yeah, he may have been religious, but he also always had this tem- temptation with women that he was dealing with, you know. So it was, it was kind of interesting to, kind, to see how um, these adaptations uh, differed because even for... Um, taking it at the 70s level, contemporary politics for the 70s at the time, you're still seeing something that was more human in terms of uh, how they engaged when they did their duels and things like that. You know, like the challenges were much more, you could see that um, they were a bit more amused by this boastful boy and that the dueling was just more to give him a comeuppance. But, you know, not so much... Like, they weren't so ruthless and bloodthirsty all the time. You know, drunks, yeah. But uh, it was a different kind of thing, and it felt a little bit more authentic rather than played up for a joke or um, for frivolity, you know? Yeah. And 
I mean, uh, in Kiefer Sutherland, I forget again his character name. Uh, Athos. Athos. Yeah, total drunk. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. And uh-huh. there's a spot in this, but I'm sure we'll get to it, but like he tells Chris O'Donnell this really long, depressing fucking story while he's drinking alone in the corner. Yeah. And says, well, sit down, I'll pour you a glass of wine while he's just slugging it out of the bottle. Mm-hmm. And he basically tells him, like, yeah, this is why I'm constantly alone and don't have human connections and I, I drink by myself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If you want to drink with me, we're not going to have conversations. We're going to drink. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's quite a, um, a, a, what is it? An information dump that happens in this one monologue. Yeah. You know, because uh, they literally say, like, there could have been moments where um, just prior to that, it's something like, oh, he likes to drink alone or something like that. You could have in those moments been a little bit more like, uh, be cautious, boy. He's, you know, nursing more than that bottle there. Something. You know what I mean? So that there's not this weighty fucking monologue that suddenly kicks in and you're like, um. Well, I mean, previous to that, too, when they're getting away in the carriage, he tells Chris O'Donnell, like, oh, shit, here, you take the reins. Oliver Platt found me a bottle of wine. And he drinks an entire bottle of wine during a fucking... Yes, yeah. Chase. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, it's it's still that example of this is frivolous. We're, we're all having fun and all of this. Don't think about what we're actually doing here. Yeah, because you we would put, not see those sequences now. Because we put bouncy, fun music behind it mm-hmm. and Porthos cracked a joke or two. And, and honestly, let's face it, this is movie fantasy world. We're going to give our heroes a lot of slack, a lot of latitude, because it's 1400s France. Who fucking knows how they lived there? Of course, they drank and did all this stuff. You know, they were heathens anyway. Let's just laugh at, uh, you know, this this period of time that is impossible to have actually existed. You know, they're murdering people and having fun, but at least they're not a lecherous cardinal who's trying to fuck a teenager, (laughs) teenage queen. Teenage queen, yes. Under the nose of the actual king. Because yeah. because the musketeers are also trying to fuck a teenager in that bar. Well, this is why I, I told you to get off your phone, because that whole sequence about the different ways to I was to looking seduce... up Chris O'Donnell facts, I'm sorry. Well, I understand he can be captivating. But the scenes <laughs> were interesting because this... Here's a 90s perspective on how to romance a woman. Mm -hmm. Right. Interpreted through the, you know, whatever the scene must have actually been from the original novels, if that scene was in there at all. Right. But the larger point is, here's here's someone who's basically saying, okay, look, you don't need a lot of words. You just get up, you look her in the face. And if she looks like she's willing, you lay a smacker on her. And then, you know, then she's yours and she's yours. Right. You do it right. She'll know you're a real man. You do it wrong. She'll think you're a joke and that and you'll be done. You know, it's all in the kiss. And then you have um, Charlie Sheen. No irony whatsoever. (laughs) Charlie Sheen. (laughs) Goes and uh, recites a poem. And frankly, the way he recites the poem is really kind of shitty. Yeah. It's, you know? It's fine at best. Yeah, at best. 
But, you know, the actress does what she's paid to do and fawns into his arms. And, uh, you know, we have this demonstration of essentially, no, you woo the woman through her mind. Engage the the intellect, the fantasy, what have you. And then you have Chris O'Donnell who tries to do it and like... Who stumble bums over to this girl. Like mutters, a good old virgin boy. Mutters a bunch of nonsense at yeah. her and then just aggressively grabs her and kisses her. Yeah. Uh-huh. Good thing she was into it. <laughs> well, good thing she was probably standing there watching the whole scene and recognizing, oh, this idiot's he's going <laughs> to need some look, help. Look at this dumb shit. <laughs> <laughs> look at this yeah. 32-year-old idiot virgin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and this these... Uh, that whole scene, once again, I don't know that you would see a scene like that play out now. You no. know? So Because um, it's sexual assault mainly, but Well, on one hand, see, and this is I, why I it all that's, starts that's to me, get into that's it. That's me because, being a nitpicky dick. I get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so okay, so um moving forward from there, essentially at this point. The um, three musketeers have not officially accepted D'Artagnan, but they recognize the name D'Artagnan because they recognize that his father genuinely was a musketeer, so they allow him to pal around. And because of this palling around, he gets associated with them and sort of gets wrapped up into finding out that, oh yeah, Tim Curry, the cardinal, really is trying to kill the king. And he's actually got um, a spy by the name of, I don't know, some French sexy lady, played by Rebecca de Mornay. <laughs> Say by the name of Rebecca de Mornay. <laughs> yeah, Rebecca de Mornay, who um, uh, is carrying a, a treaty that simply needs to be signed by uh, the Duke of England, one of the Dukes or Kings or whatever yeah, title. Yeah, it, it needs to go to Britain to be signed. Yeah. And it's this... And it, she's it's, the it's courier. Already, and it's already supposing that the King of France has been killed. Exactly. So the Cardinal's signature is already on it, and he's literally sending her with this document saying, the minute his signature is on here, this is valid, and the king will be the French King will be dead, and I will be King. So, boom, go do your uh, uh, covert mission. And um, Chris O'Donnell, because he's our sexy American playing the French guy hero, he hears the whole conversation, shares it with his three musketeer buddies, and they all say, well, obviously... After a thrilling escape. Well, yeah, well. And, okay, let's talk about the money. In this movie. Okay, Brad, yeah, I've been I've been itching to get down to it. <laughs> okay. Alright. So great budget, shot on location, no CGI shit, practical effects from start to finish. Even the people in the deep background are actual people in period costume. The action in this movie fucking rules, dude. Isn't it good? I and, was surprised. And dude. I don't mean just uh like your one on one action. The mm-hmm. entire sets. I mean, we're jumping. I'm jumping way to the end, but the no one cares, dude. <laughs> yeah, the cardinals men versus when all the musketeers show up. Yeah, and it is a total just mayhem on a battlefield. Yeah, shot from above. Fucking goddamn it! It rules, dude. They must have had at least what would you say, 150, 200 people in oh. costume, red and blue costume. Uh-huh. 
who were out there with actual rapiers going to choreography. Battle. Yeah, doing full-on choreography, fighting for a courtyard. I mean, dude, even towards the tail end, right, when you are getting to um, Michael Wincott and um, um, Chris O'Donnell. Kiefer. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. At that point, you're starting to see bodies on the stairs, right? Now, okay, just from a production value standpoint, you're talking about someone who is paid to show up on the day, put on a costume, and lay on stairs for about eight hours, probably 10 or 12, while they're doing all of this other fight choreography. You're not supposed to move. No one's ever going to see your fucking face. But that's your job. And they have littered the hallway with these extras. Now that is production value, Chris, right fucking there. That's what we miss when it's all this CGI shit and you're in volumes and all of this, you know, bullshit now. Dude, the set decoration in this is fucking fantastic. When they are chasing Richelieu Mm -hmm. and he's getting in that boat and everything's lit by fire and they're in an underground cavern or whatever Uh with two, like, flame pots out in the water on this gigantic boat. Yeah. Dude, it looks fucking amazing. Yeah. And it's one of those things that you go, well... Okay, Disney has money. Okay, Disney has money in 2023. Mm-hmm. In 1993, Disney was on a real upswing. They Excellent were just point. cranking back up. Yeah. To spend that much money on something like this is a real risk that yeah. Disney took. And God damn it, they made everything look perfect. Yeah. There's not... The other side of that Disney thing, too, is that a lot of that upswing was because of animated movies. Exactly. Not necessarily live action. So for them to be spending for live action like this, I mean, that that's, to me, that's impressive as hell. Mm-hmm. You know, really impressive. Like I said, I don't remember exactly when uh, Little Mermaid was, but that was one of the big kickoffs. And then obviously, like, yeah. Beauty and the Beast. Lion and, King, all and of those. I, I don't remember what year Lion King was. It was all, like, 90s stuff. No, I know, though, but right? I'm saying, like, this might even predate that as being, like, the resurgence of Disney's greatness, really. Could well be, because I know it wasn't Treasure Island 2000 or whatever the fuck that was. No, and it, <laughs> I'm just saying that it's weird, too, that this is just kind of slid into obscurity because mm. they again they must have spent so much goddamn money but also how much of this shit do they have also laying around because it's disney they've been making movies for 40 years well you know it's funny you bring that up because one of the things that and they have people that, well, on staff that know how to do this well that's one of the things that i was thinking um, as I was watching it, because as I was looking at the sets, the swords, all of the, you know, the fabric for the costumes and all of this stuff, um, one of the things that struck me was that um, this was before the whole, um, um, what is it, um, move to Canada where production started to go out to Canada or production started to go out of Hollywood, right? When I first got out there, it was um, summer of 97, right? So things were already starting to leave because Canadian production and all of that sort of stuff. And so, I mean, dude, no joke, in North Hollywood, there were probably like seven or eight different um, prop houses that were their own individual warehouses 
full of Western or Roman or, you know, whatever period stuff, contemporary, back to period, all of that sort of thing. All of these prop houses effectively went under in the space of the first three, four years that I was living out there because all of the work went away, right? But something like this, I mean, those prop houses, that's, that's what those prop houses did was was the you you want 150 rapiers okay fucking fine we got you know we've got this right and so um so it was fascinating to watch this and remember oh yeah there actually was a time when the studio system genuinely had like these warehouses had all of this stuff available could make these movies because they already owned the shit they were just recycling it you know refabricating the the wraps and the cloaks with uh different emblems or whatever and making it work you know <coughs> so i really miss that i don't know a lot about disney's business model in the 1990s but like mm. i can imagine a lot of these you know producers directors set deck everything mm-hmm. they they're already on staff this isn't people that you have to go find it's well yeah i mean you, you to, saw you in the to, credits all you have to collect is like okay well who are we having star in this because we have people to do literally everything else exactly you saw in the credits and that's what convinced me because i w- was still having trouble believing it was a disney movie until the end credits but you saw buena vista sound buena vista studios i mean Dude, you don't see those unless that's a full-on Disney product. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Because just like you're saying, they had these armies of staff. You know, now they still have armies of staff. That's true, but it's nothing, nothing like it was 30 years ago. Yeah, and which is a shame. And again, just going back to like set deck and costuming. Yeah, these are professionals who know what they are doing. There is not a thing out i mean i'm sure if you really really looked there might be but just on a casual viewing there's nothing out of place everything looks fucking perfect well <coughs> and even the stunts as you had mentioned earlier oh, i mean the star crews are great you're doing you're doing horse horses full gallop and they even had a duel with michael wincott and chris o'donnell on horseback which was great. They and literally charged out each other. And hanging <laughs> from a fucking flag. I mean, dude, you who does that now? You know what I mean? It ruled. It's so awesome. And you could tell, yeah, okay, there were moments where you could tell it was the stuntmen, not the real actors. That has never been the point. Yeah. The, that, the point the, is if that, that if that takes people actually did that shit. If if seeing that, oh, that's a stuntman doing 55 on a horse if that takes you out of the film then that's fine yeah that's your problem because you know what that rules yeah and i don't assume that yeah it was Kiefer sutherland hauling ass on a horse Yeah. yeah i mean the the actors did exactly what they were supposed to do when the shot was on them doing the action but when you go in wide and it's the more dangerous stuff and all of that of course they're going to have stuntmen because that's what the stuntmen are there for. <laughs> that is the business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the best things about stunts is that they are there, they, they take pride in the idea that they are there to take the hit for the star. You know what I mean? 
It's like, no, I'll get in there. I'll do that. No, no. We and, can get that done. And if we are going to talk <laughs> about performances, and I never thought I would ever feel the need to say these words, hmm. but hats off to Kiefer Sutherland. Hmm. He must have actually worked real hard on sword fighting because, man, he pulls it out a few times in this, mm-hmm. like in extended sequences of him oh, yeah. doing sword fighting. Yeah. He's really good. Yeah. Or at least very passable for what this movie needed. Well, it's a great example um, of what I was saying earlier about the different fighting styles. You know, because um, Charlie Sheen, he's clearly given, okay, one, two, three, one, two, three, say your line, done. And nothing wrong with that, right? Yeah. Oliver Platt, do this, say a joke, done, right? Mm-hmm. Now... At this time also, I will say Kiefer Sutherland, at this time, okay, maybe he's starting to get into a little gray area in the personal life, but he still had a reputation at this time of being a hardworking and a professional actor, like showing up deep ready to perform, you know, having researched his character and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, his... Dad's Donald Sutherland, so yeah. he already comes in with a legacy reputation behind him. But he didn't come in in the very beginning of his career. He wasn't coming in like writing the Sutherland name. He actually, the the press on him early on was that this dude's got. He's an intense actor. He's got his um, uh, shit together when it comes to performing the character you know because i mean we can say that yeah nepotism it it definitely helped there's no denying that being a sutherland didn't help i don't know how you get an audition with carl reiner without really having done many movies at all right without being donald sutherland's kid but also (laughs) there are uh Tons of actors' kids who were in a movie or two mm-hmm. and were not good mm-hmm. and did not uh, did couldn't not, hold up. Did not get to enjoy that privilege. So I mean, mm-hmm. you can talk about nepotism a lot, but you still needed to have something to back it up. Yeah, because there's a, again a lot of celebrities, kids or family, brother, whatever, mm-hmm. who did a movie or two and were kind of around, and then. Yeah, and then went nowhere after yeah, that. Because yeah. like, okay, well, we don't care. We're still making a movie where we need you to perform if we hire you. Yeah, and this is bad. So, yeah. yeah, well, you know, it was an interesting study because it was like he didn't really uh, indulge in all of that uh, spoiled Hollywood craziness until he had the career to allow him to do it. You know what I mean? Which is kind of unusual because most kids just burn out. I didn't drink on dad's money. I drank on my money. (laughs) Yeah, exactly my point. You know, and you got to respect that, Chris. You got to respect that. (laughs) And and now when I take off my shirt, I look like a weird Russian prison gangster. Dude, those tats, what, why? I mean, okay, I, I can't, fault a guy for having tattoos i have six myself i'm probably going to get more but i don't understand those nasty ass tattoos that he has you know because i i think when you say he looks like a russian convict you're actually complimenting him with the layout of those tattoos it's it's ugly 
you know? <laughs> it's bizarre. Yeah. But again, I, I cannot be one to talk about people's stupid tattoos <laughs> as I am covered in them. And they are all bad. <laughs> Don't you have a slice of pizza on the side of your head? Uh, a wedge of cheese. A wedge of cheese. Swiss cheese. Okay. Because I uh, got the affectionate nickname of Swiss Cheese Brain from a friend of mine due to uh, the amount of alcohol that I used to consume. Ah, uh, that okay. I There were large uh, gaps of memory missing. Ah, uh, well, that will happen. Yep. Yeah. It sure does, Brad. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. <laughs> but, uh, so, so back to Three Musketeers. Yeah, so, uh, essentially, Chris O'Donnell, uh, shares with them that the king's life is in danger. There's a plot. They go after the courier. Come to find out that the reason Kiefer Sutherland drinks is all because of... Rebecca de Mornay. Because of this woman. The woman. The woman with the fleur-de-lis, which they say in this movie is the mark of a murderer. In the one from the 70s, they call it the sign of the harlot. So, she wasn't just uh, accused of murder. She uh, was... So... There is definitely then a Disney change because yeah. they didn't want that. Yeah, exactly. A murderer is better than a whore. Well, in Disney's eyes, you know, it's fine if you stab somebody, you just can't stab them with your penis. Exactly. So. <laughs> I think that's so. that's the rule for most mainstream movies. There's there's another section segment of film dedicated to that. Right, exactly. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, I think um, that's kind of the norm is that. Yeah. But still, interesting that this tattoo Could you has imagine this sort how of... weird Cobra would be with full penetration? Cobra, Cobretti. Well, the... the <laughs> Dude. <laughs> Just a sweaty, coked-out Stallone hammering away at Brigitte Nielsen. Well, anyway. he did do that softcore movie. I mean, you're aware of that, right? Yes. So, you can already get that if you... Um, you know. I don't want to. I'm just saying the options out there. I, I'm aware. Thank okay. you, Brad. All right. So anyway, at any rate, how? Do, so three musketeers. Um, so they go after her. Um, now this was another strange thing. Somehow Chris O'Donnell, even though leaving days after Rebecca De Mornay, is able to catch up, pass, and pass out on the trail. Because, uh... To Calais. They realize... The musketeers realize that they have to split up to get to Calais. Right. So, uh... Charlie Sheen and, uh... Oliver Platt... Right. Split off and... Aramis Kiefer, and Porthos. Yeah, Kiefer says, uh... Chris O'Donnell's coming with me. Yeah. Chris O'Donnell, you young, ignorant, naive... Human shield. <laughs> yes. Come with me. <laughs> you go first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. They literally get into a gunfight with... Um, the guards. With, yeah, with the Cardinals guards. And Kiefer's like, you go, I'll hold them off. And Chris O'Donnell's like, no, man, I don't want to leave you behind. You go or I'll shoot you myself. Yeah, you go be a moving target for these assholes. I'm going to hang out <laughs> yeah. behind this tree. Yeah, because what Kiefer Sutherland is not saying is, you go draw their fire by running over to your horse and then galloping away at speed. And while they're shooting at you, I'll be picking them off from behind a tree. I mean, that, I mean, it clearly, 
Chris O'Donnell even looks back as he's running, and there's Kiefer just shooting and, like, reloading, you know? <laughs> so it's like, okay, all right, that's the whole strategy. They never really show him escape that either. He just kind of shows up in Calais. They couldn't show him escape because you had to do (laughs) you had to think that he was sacrificing his life for chris o'donnell right the noble sacrifice but of course knowing the uh style of movies in any hollywood movie if you don't see him die he's gonna show up at the end and save the day so what i'm saying is that somebody is going to be walking through the forest and just find like eight dead bodies strewn around brutally massacred yeah yeah and be like somebody's gonna go what the fuck happened here yeah and there aren't gonna be any musketeers to explain anything there will be no answers (laughs) it will just be a sea of corpses oh jesus could you imagine dude but this is kind of um uh what we're talking about with this whole sort of aspect of not thinking about the violence and how you know this this was a core element of all of these movies not just you know, Three Musketeers or whatever, if it was a shoot 'em up if it was an a- action movie, there was property damage that's just ridiculous. Nobody thinks about it anymore, you know? Anyway, so um, they catch up to her. Um, she figures out that Chris O'Donnell knows something about it, but she's not sure what. Oh, yeah, because as you were saying, he just passes out on the road. Yeah, and they come that's, across him. That is... Yeah, I she questions. comes across him. Does he? I'm guessing he just passed out from exhaustion, though, right? Because mm-hmm. at no point do they like he doesn't get poisoned or anything, right? Right. The okay. idea is that he's been riding day and night, and uh, when he collapses on the road, passes out, his horse basically fucks off and disappears. Okay, well, I was just clarifying so that I I didn't miss something like, oh, he had been poisoned and after a few days it got to him or something. But see, now that's a good question because one of the things that they don't do with Rebecca de Mornay but they do bring up um, in this other series is how she killed the other guy. Right. And they allude to the idea that she poisoned him in some fashion. So when D'Artagnan encounters her and they have their first sort of face-off, she doesn't just have a dagger. She's using poison and he's able to figure out, oh, shit, you know, and, uh, and avoid um, getting killed basically twice by her as he's trying to escape. So she's like, you know, authentically dangerous. And, um, and yeah, so, so I just gave it, gave it up there, though. Chris O'Donnell escapes. And um, reunites with the other musketeers. And then it becomes this full-on race to um, to get back to the king. Yeah, to get back to Paris. Right. Oh, dude. From Calais. I'm sorry. I don't want to right. gloss over this. I almost did completely gloss over this. Rebecca de Mornay's death. What'd you think, dude? Uh... Honestly, I don't remember it. Oh, so, spoiler, not, she dies. Yeah, yes. <laughs> not not memorable. Take me through it. I'm sure I'll, I'll remember. Not memorable. My gracious. Okay, so... Was I um, looking at Chris O'Donnell facts again? You may well have been. <laughs> but, um, so what happens is, they're going to execute her. 
Oh shit! Okay, yep. All right, I remember. Yeah. I I could. <laughs> I got some of the characters confused, Brad. There's a lot of characters, and yeah. I, I had to ask you a few times who Rebecca De Mornay even was. Yeah. Well, they go through a lot of introductions oh, real quick. This is bananas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's a guy who basically Rebecca De Mornay killed his brother, somehow or other, and I don't know how. He catches up to them. So and captures her and captures her, right? So by the time the three musketeers get to her, she's already in prison, and this guy is like, "Nah, fuck her, I'm gonna kill her." And so even though Kiefer Sutherland is in love with her and all of this stuff, because she's the woman that he told that long depressing story about in yeah, the bar, she's the reason he drinks is because he had a broken heart and all this betrayal and nonsense. So he goes to her and is like, "Look, you can still help the king by telling us what you know." And she's like, "Don't you have any other kind words?" And he's like, "No, I'm a dick." And she's like, "Well, then fuck you." And so they don't say anything until until they get out on the side of this cliff. Yeah, with a fucking chopping block. There's a there. They don't even have a chopping block, dude. They have her get down on her knees. The guy pulls her hair from over her shoulders. He's got a fucking uh, two-handed like broadsword, dude. Mm-hmm. And he's just gonna lop her head off with this sword. And he's... I don't even see a chopping block. So, okay. And this is a guy that they like. Because all the musketeers are there. Like, he has no idea what's happening. He's just excited he gets to cut a lady's head off. He literally looks happy that he's going to cut her head off. So he raises the sword over his head. He's about to swing. And Kiefer goes, no! No, don't kill her! Never mind! (laughs) She's so awesome! I really don't want her to die, right? And then he falls on her knees. and, And he's like, look, I'm... Sorry, will you forgive me, please, for being such a dick? And she's like, that's all I wanted to hear. Yes, I forgive you. Seconds after she thought she was going to be dead. Yeah. And he told her, you're going to be dead. I could save you, but I won't. He literally says this. Yeah. Yeah. Can you please help me? No, I can't. No. And in the split second before I was killed by these villagers, you decided then that no, don't. Yeah. Yeah, I forgive you, sure. (laughs) But then check this out. So she's like, that's all I wanted to hear. Yeah, I forgive you. And by the way, the king is, uh, the cardinal's going to do this to the king on his birthday. So that's the big secret. And uh, Kiefer looks at her and he's like, Oh, thank you. You're really awesome. And your soul is saved forever. You're totally rad, babe. (laughs) And she's like, yeah, I feel so much better. And then she stands up and she jumps off the cliff, dude. It's a good fall, too. It's an... Okay. There are several good falls in this, but... Yeah, totally, dude. And they actually, they do. They follow the body down... To the respectful cliff face where it drops behind so we don't see it actually ricochet off the ground. Milliseconds before you see her insides turn to jelly inside Right, exactly. Before she becomes paste splattered all over the rock seawall. At any rate, um, so noble death then? Sure. Redeemed, I suppose? Well... It's them having this weird moment and then like four other dudes just kind of standing around watching it. Like, Yeah, it's like... It's insane. It's well, what it is. 
Well, okay, so I guess essentially there's no fucking way she's going to get out of it. Yeah. You know? So she's allowed, I guess, the dignity of choosing her own manner of death rather than being lopped off or whatever. Yeah. Having her head lopped off. But even so, man. That's intense. Strange. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. For, again, a Disney movie. Yes. You know? So uh, here's something that we've kind of skipped over a whole huh. bunch, just in the general plot. Hmm. Uh, the Cardinal Richelieu is basically begging everyone around him to kill him at all times. Isn't this interesting? This is a bad guy who literally we see pushing the boundaries. There's no, you know, oh, I will move in the shadows. We see him literally as he is moving in the shadows, the way that he's talking to these people is outright disrespectful and in that time should have gotten you murdered. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But he's able... Now, this is why, once again, I, I think there are moments where the writing and the construction of the scenes are so clever because you see the only times he actually gets threatening is when he is alone with that person and he is so close quarters that he's basically just whispering in their ear. You know, low tone, oh, well, this is what I would really want to have happen. Right after he disbands the uh, the musketeers, the musketeers yeah. in the beginning, mm-hmm. he and his uh, Michael Wincott, his mm-hmm. one-eyed uh, sheriff of Nottingham. Yes, yeah, they're standing on a like an indoor stairwell alone. Like it almost, it, for modern perspective, it kind of looks like the staircase of like a parking garage. Right, just giant and made out of stone. Right, right, right. It palace steps, but they are completely alone. Mm-hmm. And he's alone with this man who is a cold-blooded murderer. Yeah, who Wincott, is clearly his, a killer. His cold-blooded murderer. Yeah. And has presumably taken abuse for a while. And he is doing nothing but just verbally assaulting this man. Yeah. yeah. Because he is so goddamn arrogant that nobody will rise up against him. Tim Curry even taunts him about his eye patch. Yeah. Which, imagine, anybody else taunts it's like literally poking a tiger with a stick yeah and telling him that you're going to take his other good eye yeah (laughs) Yeah. while you're alone with this man yeah yeah the balls and you know we talked about this in the moment but imagine he just pulls out his dagger stabs the cardinal in the heart wipes the blood off the dagger sheathes it and then says help Assassin. Somebody just stabbed the cardinal. I was just coming upstairs. What happened? Assassin, (laughs) seal the building. Who's going to say otherwise? Exactly. Right? The cardinal's right-hand man just stabbed the... Unthinkable. Yeah. You know? And But this is why those scenes with the cardinal are so great. Because each one of these moments, you're like, this guy would be fucking dead. But then they show conversations later, and people are like, Really? Is that what really happened? Rebecca De Mornay threatens to cut his dick off, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he because politely he... backs off. Uh-huh. But that's the thing, is every time he makes an overture, 
right? We see he is literally pushing the boundaries of what his power actually is. And when people call him on it, he backs off. Maybe he makes a threat like, just remember I'm powerful, but he still backs off, right? In those moments when he wins, you see, oh, he wins. He Because he's Tim Curry, he just revels in that win. And just shines. Yes, yes. It is so fucking amazing to see this evil power portrayed the way it is. I mean, the next best thing that you can think of in terms of Disney, and this is even before they owned it, was the fucking Emperor. Emperor Palpatine, right? Mm -hmm. Because those three... prequels he's all like oh well i will make it legal and all of this shit right but you still only have the hints of the machinations of how he really manipulated there's him and anakin yeah okay but the actual court and all of the other politics you really don't get those scenes but with this with this three musketeers you've got this guy just reveling in being evil and being manipulative it's great stuff and and it is interesting that nothing has changed from the 1400s to the current day you give a single man a shit ton of power Mm -hmm. for an extended period of time they become disconnected from the actual world yeah and become just this thing that lives in the shadows that the public has no idea who these people really are this is why i say know your history This is why I say look at these early works, classical works, even if it's black and white movies, whatever it is. If it was made 50 years ago, if it was made 100 years ago, if it was made 1,000 years ago, and we still have documentation from 1,000 years ago, you can see these human relationships are all fundamentally the same. The dynamics work the same. They translate roughly the same. And And that always have (laughs) and that teaches you that the minute you start to go nah people aren't like that no people are like that and they always fucking have been and if you understand that well it makes coping with a bunch of bullshit in this world a lot easier to deal with yeah and especially the 1400s in the catholic church anywhere in europe Mm -hmm. it was the most corrupt system that possibly has ever been like they are just historically monsters and even a story like this is not out of the ordinary for the catholic church whatsoever yeah Yeah. again nothing has changed because now instead of it being religion it's you know every politician that you've seen or bad faith actor in the political spectrum is doing these exact same things yeah anyway yeah. it's just interesting is all well and um and i think that's one of the reasons why we can connect with this movie even though it's you know 30 years old and was let's let's face it a ham bone job when it came out you know they just basically got the flashiest actors of the time, you know, and, uh, and threw a bunch of movie um, money at this studio picture and uh, and went with it, you know. So um, I think it did all right at the box office uh, when it came out. It wasn't anything that was like, you know, 
lauded for with critical yeah. praise or anything, but it, it was never designed to be. It wasn't breaking Jaws records or anything. Exactly. It basically it was young guns with uh, swords. You know, so um, so yeah, so so they uh, catch up to the cardinal. There's a wonderful uh, scene which I am sure. They stole later with all of the portals at the end of Endgame where everybody comes back <laughs> because there's this wonderful standoff with the three musketeers in all of their blue uh, cloaked glory against probably 50 or 100 all red cloaked cardinal guards. Oh, man. And then all of the civilians run up, doff their cloaks, and underneath... And it's all musketeers. And then because we got a rumble. Because they've been hitting up the storage that they've had just laying around these towns. Well, they knew there would be a call of a crossbow bolt with a note that just says one for all and all for one. And that's all you would need to know. You would need to show up at the king's birthday party with all your gear and your swords and all that shit and be ready for a fight, motherfucker, because that's, that's all that means. That's all you need to know. There's just one guy. He's like, no, that's, that's Daryl. He watches the tree. <laughs> if the crossbow note yeah. hits, he comes and gets us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then we pull our swords out of the hay. And uh, the one hiding spot that I, I will give him credit for that I thought was plausible was the the barrels. Right. They had the, the barrel storage of like the, the wine maker or whatever that was and he tips over a barrel and there's all these swords it's like okay that one i buy but you know just a stack of hay you're gonna leave it there for years months days whatever the fuck it'll be fine no one cares (laughs) and it comes out pristine not not a bit of rust on the sword it's rusty all the better fabric spotless you know because the other guy might stab you but they don't know about tetanus shots (laughs) you know you did remind me, though, they make a big deal out of D'Artagnan's sword and how he inherited it from its his father, and it's got a gold hilt and all of this, right? Uh-huh. In the 78 version, he does have his father's sword, but it's rusted because it's old. Mm-hmm. And so when he does go to fight a duel, one of the first things that happens is they, they swing on his sword, he moves to block it, and it blade breaks and he's fucked right so um so interesting that you mentioned that because yeah this was another aspect of uh authenticity that was just kind of brushed aside so we could have this clean polished steel with the blue emblems on the hilts you know all of this stuff so um i mean fuck i I, it was a complete lark to put this movie on but i'm so fucking glad we did yeah, dude and it it super doesn't matter i'm not like trying to pick apart this stupid disney movie but right where did he get that sword because if uh eye patch uh mustachioed man killed his father and liked the sword that he stole yeah where how did it get back to d'artagnan yeah well there's lots of things like the musketeers at the beginning that when they're told to disband they drop their swords and their cloaks right there in the courtyard. We see them doing that. So, what, did they just have, like, a backup set that they had? Sure did. Yeah. In a barrel. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> in a barrel somewhere, you know, because yeah. times were good and you could get two or three sets. And... Or, or just under a big fake rock in the middle of town. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, so, I mean, lots of stuff to love about this movie. Which, to be fair, I mean, what if you get some a whole lot of blood on your first musketeer outfit? You're going to need a backup because you don't want to have flies on your, on your nice robes. And as a musketeer, your monthly salary must have been good enough that you could afford at least a second or a third cloak. I mean, that's something that the Cardinal really didn't take into consideration, that they also had extra arms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but they uh, they sh- sure were focused on the Count because they knew that every single musketeer had quit except for these three. We can't find these three. How weird. It's It's these three. Like... All of the musketeers were just isolated in one spot, you know. Yeah, and they, they all, they all they came just to checked the, them all off. They all, they came to the middle of town, yeah, and with a clipboard. Like, yeah, Ron Stevenson present already. <laughs> uh, Jimmy cloak Adams. and sword on the ground. Yeah. Thank you, cloak and sword on the ground. Thank you. Please, you know, cloak in the first bin, swords in the second bin. Please, <laughs> let's move it along. <laughs> the king doesn't have all day, people. Come on, yeah, totally. So, um. So yeah, but uh, you know, I I love this movie. I will say it. I do love this movie, and I love it because it is an excellent example of the action movies that you literally you just went to be entertained. You didn't want to think too much about it. You didn't need to think too much about it. There's some women. There's some lovely heaving chests in those costumes. Chris, Chris O'Donnell wakes up next to just Rebecca De Mornay's tits. And who wouldn't want to do that, you know? That's fair. Yeah. But uh, but these these are the kinds of things that it's like, ah, okay, you know, I remember when when I I would just be like, you know what? I got two hours in between whatever the fuck I'm doing. Let me just go check out this movie. Go check it out. Not think about anything. Go and enjoy my day, and like something like this, I know that I bought the ticket, the second ticket, not because I like Chris O'Donnell. I didn't like Chris O'Donnell at all. What I liked was all the swashbuckling stuff. I loved the swords, all of that. That was worth the second ticket for me. So I have a big rule when I am watching films like this, because Mm. this falls into kind of the specific category. Of like, yeah, what movies would I watch like for research for an HPV? And this would absolutely be one of them. And one of my biggest rules is if you're going to be stupid, fine. Be a stupid movie. I don't need everything to be a a two-hour mental exercise after I watch it. Right. But be entertaining. If you're going to be stupid, entertain me. And this movie, from start to finish, Mm -hmm. has almost no fad on it. The pacing is done perfectly yeah the swashbuckling the action scenes the comedic releases here and there Mm -hmm. the uh uh cardinal being a fucking lecherous old creep (laughs) the bad guy is a genuine bad guy both of the bad guys are genuine fucking bad guys Uh uh-huh you know it's none of this oh but they were abused as a child so we should be sympathetic you know or they didn't get this as a kid, so we should be sympathetic. No, fuck it. These guys are bad guys. They're evil right? fucking pricks. Yeah. Uh-huh. And they're moving on uh, innocent people deliberately, knowing that what they're doing is wrong, and they're enjoying doing it. Mm-hmm. So fuck those people. You know, these these are the kinds of bad guys that you want in your movies, because when they get their comeuppance, it is so satisfying. 
to know that good one. Yeah, you know? to watch the 16-year-old king of France just fucking punch Tim Curry into a river. He's straight. He's straight. Okay. Aramis, Charlie Sheen, is in the boat, and he's ready. He tells uh, he tells the cardinal, surrender, right? And the king, king goes, no, hold on a second. Like, puts Charlie Sheen aside, and then just goes, wah! I mean, for a... Uh, uh, an arc with the king and seeing him just cold cock the cardinal and knock him into the water the way that he does you're like ah see because uh, and i mean their relationship actually progresses pretty well because it's like it it's basically it revolves around trepidation mm -hmm. the king is concerned about this guy but he's the cardinal yeah, I mean, I. You, and the you king is a boy. You the, shouldn't cast doubt on this holy man. Right. I mean, yeah, right. I've heard things. I've heard lots of things. And by the end, when they're walking uh, at his birthday thing, and the queen says to the something to the effect of like, "I'm nervous." The yeah, cardinal's he's here. An, he's an evil man. Yeah, and the king's like, "I, I, I I'm starting to suspect that myself. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I know." But notice, once again, the great writing. You just alluded to the scene where the king confronts the cardinal for the first time. I've heard these rumors. And it's, oh, this it's is, such a good scene because Tim Curry says... excellent. Tim Curry's like, oh, well, let me guess. Does it go like this? And he goes through probably four or five different things. Two of them, definitely, he is actually doing. Yeah, we have seen him do these things. The others are like, oh, and, um, you know, I'm... And uh, I turned somebody into goats. And yeah, exactly. I made, I made the townsmen levitate. Believe me, King, your, yeah. your majesty, I've heard all of these rumors before. Yeah, some more extraordinary than the others. And it's just this great piece of manipulation that sets up doubt. Just enough doubt to where the cardinal can retain control for that that length of time that he needs to continue his plot, you know? Yeah, it's it's so, kind of along the lines of when uh, Merrick and Karis in The Exorcist go to confront the devil. Yeah. Merrick pulls him aside and says, the devil will mix truth with lies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To confuse you. Yeah. It's that exact same approximation that Richelieu does to the king in that scene. He gives I was just thinking how clever it was to, specifically with that example that you use, that this is the cardinal, and we see him as this um, uh, devil personified, you know, yeah. this evil personified, and the way he manipulates, and the way that he's able to use these half-truths. I mean, again, really solid writing to, to justify and counterbalance these action sequences. So yeah, there's, you know, these duels and lots of really good horseback stunts and things like this. But then there's also, no, no, you got to pay attention to the politics of what's happening here because... Because it's dark. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's some evil shit, man. It's some evil stuff. Because basically Rebecca De Mornay's character is a woman who, um, let's say, had a troubled past, came across a musketeer, and because of... Both of their different... Because of reasons. <laughs> yeah, because of reasons. Now, 
her basic only avenue for survival is to be this courier and betray king and country and all of these things, which already is death, you know, and all of her other uh, bad choices catch up with her. I mean, her, char her character throws herself off a cliff. And this is one of our heroic characters, right? Well, she's kind of a proxy of the bad guy. She's yeah. the bad guy's courier. Well, she's a proxy of the bad guy. I mean, no matter what, like we've talked about before, we know she's going to die, but she's given this moment of redemption right at the very end. And then she's given this moment where... Yeah, she's given agency to take her own life rather than continue. Because, like, I mean... To sort for, of have a certain of it, amount she of dignity. Yeah, because it seems like she could have walked away from all that because he spared her life, that she was effectively free to go. Mm. But rather than to continue on doing... The shit that she hates. Yeah. And being who she was in that moment to be literally manipulated to that point. You know? It literally is like the last uh, act that she... Yeah. In on-screen suicide in a Disney yeah. movie. <laughs> yeah! Exactly, dude. Exactly. This is... I mean... And then in a few minutes after that, we get to watch... Char uh, was it Charlie Sheen? No, it was uh, Oliver Platt. Kick a man into a fucking spike wall. Yeah. He doesn't just kick him into a spike wall. He then throws this lever, which brings down this huge front end of the spike wall and basically like a mousetrap slams this guy and pushes him even deeper into the spikes and we see blood come out of this guy's mouth. In a fucking Disney movie, we see a guy die horribly on a spike trap and it's, it's spill blood. It's effectively like an open-air Iron Maiden. Dude, they shot fucking Kiefer Sutherland's horse. Yeah, they sure did. They shot his horse. His horse falls down. He's got a red bullet wound right in his fucking chest, which I had never noticed before, but I... This time around, I'm like, wait a minute, did they actually shoot his horse? And sure enough... They shot his fucking horse, man. Right out from under him. Holy fuck, dude. So, you know, I mean, obviously, it's a movie, so they didn't actually shoot Kiefer Sutherland's horse. But in the context of the movie, you hear the gun, you see the horse drop, Kiefer goes, they cut away to whatever the... where the horse... the gun was, but when they cut back to the horse... The horse is going down, and he's got a big red bullet mark right in his fucking chest, right? It's like, damn, they shot that fucking horse. <laughs> you did, I don't know if they put that in here, doggo, you know? <laughs> I saw that movie on a school field trip once. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Wow. It was, it was either The Passion of the Christ or Hidalgo. Oh, my and God. And I chose Hidalgo. Yeah, I think I would have chosen Hidalgo, too. Yeah, I don't yeah. need to see any of Mel Gibson's no, bullshit. No, no, no. Fuck no. But anyway, man, I, I, I don't have anything else to say about The Three Musketeers, except for, God damn it, am I glad that I watched this. <laughs> yeah. This is yeah. an action-packed fucking movie, and even when it's not, again, the pacing is perfect mm -hmm. to where they give you the plot that you need they give you a little funny part mm -hmm. oliver platt makes a joke because he just murdered a man in one of the most gruesome ways you've ever seen and uh they go repeatedly about... multiple times <laughs> and then they go about to the next uh yeah swashbuckling sword Dude, fighting fucking i'm just sad they didn't make a four musketeers 
I, I mean, that could have something to do with box office return. I'll never know. Probably, yeah. Because they did a Young Guns too, Or due to the increasing reputation of Charlie Sheen. And Keeper. By 1993. And Chris O'Donnell. <clears throat> Excuse me. Although I know nothing about Chris O'Donnell's uh, uh, personal he, history. No, me either. But he, uh, he made that bad decision with doing the Batmans and being yeah. Robin. And then he kind of uh, disappeared a little. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and now he's on um, LACSI or some fucking thing. So at least he's still working as an actor. Good for him. But uh, and you to know. assuage your uh, concerns, Brad, hmm. I will probably ninety nine percent. I will never bring Batman and Robin to this and make you watch that. Even though I genuinely enjoy that movie, it is considered one of the worst films of all time. But I would not do that to you just as a friend. I despise Clooney as Batman. <laughs> I, I figured I really, something like that was coming. Yeah. I really am not that impressed with Chris O'Donnell as Robin. But what I will say is the visual style of that movie and any of the Schumacher Batmans. I think he only did two of them. Yes, he but, sure did. But the visual style of those movies... One of the things that I absolutely respected was that he had the balls to be outlandish yes, with sure what did. he was doing. And with... Now, I know we were talking about Clooney, but with the Val Kilmer Batman, when I was seeing the fight choreography for Batman, I really felt like they paid attention to the comics of the 70s where they were pulling all of the color and artistic style for the visual aspects of the movies. So with that being said, I kind of like those movies for the intention behind them, even though I fucking hate the casting in those movies. Oh, well, you then, know what I mean? Then I don't have to bring that here because we both yeah, agree no. it's an interesting film. Yeah, it's interesting in its way, but I think I'm going to do a video. I was talking with someone else about this. I think I'm going to do a video about um, Batman from the comic books and how they've never actually really gotten them right in the movies. They've always come close in one way or another, but there's always some aspect that gets fucked up somehow. Okay, but is so, that what you actually want, though, is just total fan service to where they do that? Or do you want them to be able to have an artistic take? As an artist, would you rather they... Well, I get own... dinged a lot of times like, oh, Brad, you're just such a purist and all of that. No, what? it's not. I can admire a certain artistic license, yes. But where the artistic license comes in is, do you still retain the essence of that character? Are you still able to present what would be an essence of that character, even though the confines of your story... Um, bring changes to that character that are not in the original source material, okay? So, for example, with Batman specifically, Batman doesn't kill. I don't give a fuck what any filmmaker says or what they think is artistically stylistic and what they want to bring to the Batman. He doesn't kill. And the minute you have Batman kill intentionally, unintentionally, casually, whatever the fuck it is, you destroy his character. 
the minute he doesn't have any guilt or remorse about death, it, the minute you he have becomes ruined, a psychopath. You have ruined Batman because Batman's whole core thing is he lost his parents when he was a boy. He does not want to inflict that kind of pain on anyone else. He wants to bring justice to these criminals. That's why he catches them and gives them to the fucking cops. That's what he does. That's what Spider-Man does, right? But Batman, no matter what, does not fucking kill. And if someone dies as a result of his, he goes through massive, massive questioning and guilt in all of this. And that's in the comic books. Now, if you, as like, a filmmaker... Like this last one where he realizes at the end, like, ooh, me doing this is a bad idea. I'm going to keep doing it, but... What's that reference? The one that, the one that we went and saw. The oh, yeah, yeah. Batman that ends with him flat out pretty much saying, like, I know this is a bad idea and I shouldn't do this, but... What, one with killing? Just being Batman. Oh, with being Batman, yeah. Well, He's like, I realize this is a net negative for the world, but I'm going to continue doing it. Well, yeah, and um, the thing about it, though, is that when that one ended, he comes to that conclusion, but he also comes to the conclusion that the way that I've been doing it has not been working. So I need to figure out a new way to do it. So, yeah, we're still talking. Yeah, but <laughs> hey, hey, Brad, do you have anything that you want to plug? <laughs> Yes, actually. Let's put an end to this. Let's yeah. shoot this fucking horse right in its head. Wow. Yeah, I don't know how we got off on that tangent. Thanks, Chris. But so, um, yes, I have a fundraiser. It's a crowdfunding campaign. It's going um, uh, currently, right now. It ends uh, at the end of July. It's for a movie called Becoming Emily. And uh, we're introducing a, a new title as part of a traditional crowdfunding thing. We're trying to do... Uh, ticket pre-sales to raise the uh, budget so we can shoot the movie but we're also introducing a mini producer credit so basically for 25 bucks which is let's face it less than the cost of going out to a movie theater you can um, not only get a ticket to the movie you get a poster to the movie but you also uh, get your name in the credits under this mini producer credit that we're giving to people at this level and we'll run all of the names as part of the end credits. So not only will you get a chance to see the uh, movie as it's in production, you'll get to see the final presentation at the premiere, and you'll get to see your name in the credits knowing that you helped make the movie happen. So um, check it out. It's becomingemilymovie.com is where you can see all the links for all of that stuff. And uh, I'm working on, I've got one promo video up right now. I've got two more that are going to go up in the next uh, couple days. And then uh, we're going to start opening up like a chat forum and um, some live streaming stuff to try and build some more um, interest in it. So, um, so yeah, so that's the main thing I got going right now. And if you donate $25 to help Brad make this movie, I personally will give you one big old smooch on the lips. <laughs> well, I don't care who you are. Well, you don't have to do that. God bless you. And that's no, not that a guarantee a, or a requirement. That is a promise I am making. If, <laughs> if you give Brad money, I will kiss your mouth. Whether you like it or not, God damn it. These All right. Well, these, obviously these, he's these joking. These smooch and lips are coming for you, baby. <laughs> Well, uh, the one thing... I got well, disposable yeah, so, income. I don't care how far away you are. 
<laughs> yeah, kissing not required. But um, look out, Denmark. The nice thing about <laughs> the nice thing about the um, uh, crowdfunding thing is that there are all sorts of different tiers. So you know, um, if you just want to see the movie, you can get a ticket for the ten dollars. If you uh, just like the idea but can't even swing ten dollars for the moment, that's cool. There's also a five dollar poster you can get. And uh, all of it goes towards the production. The main thing is so that we cover legal costs and actually pay people for the time, the effort, their creative talent in getting this movie made. The main goal, the reason that the budget is there so that we can do it as legit as possible, as economically as possible, and actually get a movie made in Grand Rapids that hopefully gets some legs under it and um, really helps get more production happening in the city. Because there are people here who deserve to work. And if we can put them to work, we should. So, And there are a lot of you out there that deserve kisses right on the mouth. So <laughs> take that into consideration. Kisses, not optional, not <laughs> required. Uh, uh, entirely something that uh, is, is farcical and humorous. <laughs> Isn't it, Chris? It's, yes. Okay, thank you. So, um... So anyway, life um, is good. Everything else is good. What do you got other than kisses for people, Chris? Uh, if you listen to this, obviously we have the horror vomit that I do with old Jimmy James Moreno. Nice. Old uh, old Jimmy James over there. Jimmy James. Mm-hmm. Yep. Old Jambalaya Jim, as I call him <laughs> when he's not around. Well, I'm sure he'll hear this and enjoy that. Uh, we, I believe we also have a zine coming at some point. Yeah, he I was have, saying something about this. Now, is I, this going to be have, an actual printed magazine? Yes, he has templates and everything. Dig it. Very yep. cool. So that is coming. Uh, you can find me sometimes uh, streaming Diablo 4 on Twitch. Uh, go. You can find me on Twitch at horror underscore vomit underscore Chris. That'd be me, where we play spooky games. Now, are you on Discord as well? Uh, somewhere, yes. We have a movie club that we did for a while, but generally speaking, on Saturday nights now, I, I, I can't stay up from 10 to midnight to watch a movie. I fall asleep during them. Uh-huh, okay. So, uh, I mean, maybe someday if we cover some ground and I get a real good amphetamine hookup, <laughs> we can do that again at some point. There's always hope. Yep, yep, just amphetamine and kisses. That's what I have for you. <laughs> give, give Brad your money and I'll bring you some, some Amphetamines crank. and kisses. <laughs> yep. Yeah, Crank and kisses. <laughs> yeah. Kisses and crank. <laughs> well, not the drug crank, not my crank. Well, I That'll mean, cost you more. Crank but, optional. But for me, I'm not giving that to Brad's movie. <laughs> if, I, if I earn Wang money, that's... Uh, that <laughs> yes. is... You can negotiate My that money, motherfucker. You can negotiate that on your so- your own. <laughs> All right, I, let's I won't be interfere. Fuck All right, thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah, bye. Bye. No. All for one, one for all. Oh, indeed. Let's <laughs> let's murder some people, Brad. <laughs>